The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. All right, you bought yourself one day, maybe two. What do you think would hold it off, Mr. Moss? Nothing, 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 nothing. I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd have to have a war. You're kidding. You're not kidding. I'm in show business, yes? Why come to me? Well, I'll tell you why, Mr. Moss. 5445, what does that mean? It's a slogan, it's from the... Remember uh, the main. Yeah, that's from... That's gotta be from... Tip a canoe and Tyler, too. No, that's not... Uh... Well, they're war slogans, Mr. Morse. Uh -huh. We remember the slogans, we can't even remember the f***ing wars. You know why? Why? That's show business. Uh -huh. That's why we're here. I see. Naked girl, covered in napalm. V for victory. Five Marines raising the flag. Mount Suribachi. Mm -hmm. You remember the picture 50 years from now, you'll have forgotten the war. Boom. The Gulf War. Smart bomb falling down the chimney. 2,500 missions a day. 100 days. One video of one bomb, Mr. Morse. The American people bought that war. Mm -hmm. War is show business. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 27, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Don't know if I'd agree that war is show business, but certainly selling a war is show business. And in the world of politics, show business takes the form of propaganda and creating narratives, both true and false. Last week I ended the show with a closing thought on the subject of war, after hearing our guest Salim Mansour observe that the victor in a war will impose their values on the vanquished. And it occurred to me that while this is entirely true, that also applies not just to war, but to politics. The victor in an election will impose their values on the vanquished. It should never be forgotten that politics is war disguised, and most recently, that war has been between two variants of the left, mistakenly identified by most people as the left wing and the right wing, who each believe in government of the people, by the government, and for the government. Which, by the way, is a perfect way to describe the anti-democratic nature of the left and the deep state. But here's what I didn't say last week. Yes, politics is war disguised. But here's the other side of that coin. War is politics, undisguised. And when it is said that all's fair in love and war, consider the reality of that philosophy and practice, and consider its implications. It explains a lot about what we are all experiencing today in terms of the lack of justice and fairness that we're seeing in our politicians and governments. And above all, it exposes the Achilles heel of what we call democracy, the voters themselves and the process that we call majority rule. It's a quagmire we'll try to dig ourselves out of right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, 
archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now the democratic dilemma I described last week goes something like this. In a democracy where we have elections, most people operate on a basic assumption that each side of a political conflict agrees to allowing the other side to quote-unquote impose their values upon them should they lose the election. And what we've seen over the years is that in the broadest terms, the right has accepted their defeats in these conditions, but the left never accepts defeat and never honors its democratic contract when defeated. This dynamic is itself a huge elephant in the room, and it's the one I mentioned last week. And this is why we have constantly been drifting leftward towards tyranny and away from freedom. Whatever form any war takes, it's winner take all, because to lose is to lose it all. Such is the nature and substance of the left-right polarity, meaning the polarity between collectivism and individualism. These two philosophies are incompatible by their very nature, so it has to be some kind of winner-take-all scenario because freedom and tyranny, they just don't mix. Now, in terms of imposed values, in a struggle where one side represents state control and the other one represents freedom, I mean, the idea of imposing state control over individuals, that makes sense, but the idea of imposing freedom on other people sounds a bit ridiculous. And so the political conflict seems unfair from the outset. I mean, they get to impose tyranny on us, and we're just going to give them their freedom if we win? By its nature, freedom represents an absence of coercion and imposition. The imposition of freedom is practically a contradiction in terms, isn't it? After all, even with freedom imposed upon the supposed vanquished, right, they're still free to practice and preach their own collectivist values. They simply can't impose them on us. But those on the left, they don't see it that way. For them, freedom does represent an imposition, and that's the one I mentioned last week, and that's the imposition of personal responsibility and accountability, which in any civilized society must be, quote-unquote, imposed on everyone equally, whether on the left or right. So why is it correct to say that politics is war and that war is politics? Because each involves the use of physical force by one side against the other. Isabel Patterson, author of God of the Machine, always warned against simply saying that government is force, correcting that statement to read, force is what is governed. Government originates in the moral faculty. To govern is to choose between right and wrong. To govern is to choose between good and evil, between left and right, between war and peace, and a whole host of polarities that in the end determine how a society will wield force and for what purposes. That's one of the reasons that so many people are coming to a realization that the war in which the world is engaged today is a moral one or a spiritual one because those are the sources from which the values of governance originates. I was just talking to Salim on the phone before sitting down to record this show, and he made the following observation. He said that the moral legitimacy of today's government is, quote-unquote, none. Only the gun is what legitimizes the power of today's governments. 
hence their constant fight against free speech and the right to freely discuss moral issues. And his comment couldn't have been more timely because, with that thought in mind, let us now turn to a recent political event that took place in the United States. Turning Point USA is a nonprofit conservative group formed in 2012 by Charlie Kirk, and its 2023 conference was held over July 15 and 16, featuring speakers ranging from Tucker Carlson to Donald Trump, and will be kicking off the Democratic debate with some of the comments made at that event by Tucker Carlson. We'll also be hearing some of what Donald Trump had to say a bit later in the show. Now bear in mind that our selected audio bites from that conference as you hear them today are not necessarily in chronological order and have been edited for the purposes of our discussion. So here's Tucker Carlson expressing some views and opinions that regular listeners to this show might find familiar. Politicians are a group that I despise on principle because they're, they tend to be soulless um, and have kind of barren and sad personal lives. And so they, you know, spend their days trying to win affirmation from people they've never met. It's pathetic. Uh, but in real life, no, it's true. They all have alcoholic or abusive fathers to whom they're trying to prove something. Um, but in practice, in person, I mean, they're all super charming. I mean, there's not a politician in the world who's not charming. That's why they went into this business. It was either that or selling cars, and this was more lucrative, so they went into it. So I like almost all of them when I meet them. I mean, you, you can't not. They can talk about anything. They've mastered the sort of shallow small talk over coffee, which I definitely appreciate. That's an acquired skill, um, and they've worked hard at it. But I have to say, after spending all day with them, I learned a couple of things which I think may be relevant to you and to the country and a couple of things, and I don't want to attack anyone in pers on personal grounds uh, or by name, it's tempting. I will say it's tempting. Whoever said do it, you're the devil on my shoulder. <laughs> do it! <laughs> I've, I've, spent my, I've spent my whole life. <laughs> no, 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 no. But if I could make some general observations, which I think are more edifying than just like savaging Mike Pence. Um, I, I think, <laughs> which I'm not going to do, because that would be wrong, and it would be wrong because it's too easy. And the easy things are not rewarding, are they? You don't feel good when you beat your five-year-old in soccer or ping pong, like what? But almost everybody in elected office in the Republican Party has internalized the other side's rules for debate. And if you think about that, there's no really more self-defeating way to go into politics or life than to accept the terms that your enemies offer before the conversation's even begun. So for example, during COVID, there were people who didn't kind of play along. We knew what the rules were. And every organization in American life, every large group of people in American life from, well, really from your government to the entire media, in some cases your church, we're all telling the same thing. Here are the rules. If you are a good person, you will follow these rules. You will mask, you will separate, you will stay at home, you'll take our shot. No, we have no idea what's in it. We don't know its long-term effects, but shut up. This is a moral test, and if you want to pass, you will obey. And there will be people who decide to opt out, but they are, and everyone agreed on this, moral criminals, they're outlaws. But the problem is nobody pushed back on the fundamental terms. Like, wait a second. You know, 
Is there evidence for this? Do you know this to be true? Don't Americans have an inherent, which is to say a right they were born with, an inherent right to make their own decisions about how they live on the most basic level, what medicine they put in their body, where they travel? Nobody said that. And of course, the media never presented that as an option. You saw this in the war in Ukraine. It began, but you were told at the very beginning that, you know, Russia was your enemy. One thing we know about this is that one side is bad and one side is virtuous. And, you know, I think a lot of decent people would reach that conclusion independently. I'm not contesting that. I think it's completely fair to think Russia's bad and Ukraine's good. But it's also within bounds to not agree with that. Because if you're an American, you have the right to decide who you hate, okay? That is a fundamental right. No one is allowed to force you to be mad at somebody else. If you're an adult, you get to decide. And you get to decide on the basis of whatever criteria you want. And it's totally fair to say, well, I don't know. I'm not mad at that person. You're not a criminal for thinking that. It's not a criminal act not to hate somebody. So it's totally fair to say, well, wait a second. You know, it's not an expression of love for Russia to say they, they haven't killed any Americans. Why is that crazy? That's true. But let's just do the body count. So what's the total number of Americans murdered by Russia in the last three years? I'm thinking I'm not great at math. I think it's around zero in that range. There is this sense in which foreign policy is like the one big thing that government does that's not subject to democratic vote, which is to say voter control. It's like, it really is about as patronizing as you can get. It really is, shh, men are talking. That's really what they're saying. I'm sorry, you a foreign policy expert? What do you know? How many years did you spend in the diplomatic court? Did you go to Fletcher School? I don't think you did. Oh, well, it's my country, actually. And you're doing this in my name with my money and potentially my children. So whether you want my input or not, you're going to get it. But that truth that democracy requires the public to sign off on wars is totally alien in Washington. And that's exactly why they like it. It's exactly why they like it. But sending cluster bombs to a government that's imprisoning Christians and stealing the money, that's kind of not your business, America. And so they can collude and do it together. That's the truth. But it almost doesn't matter where you are on this question. If you can't have an adult conversation about it, which begins with the very obvious question, why should I be mad at Russia? Like, why? Shut up! If the answer is shut up, or if the answer is to accuse you, an American citizen who loves your country, whose ancestors fought to defend it, of disloyalty to your country by people who care not at all about the United States, it's too much. It's just too much. It's too outrageous to stand. So whatever you tell me, and by the way, isn't it, it's so interesting, and narcissists are this way, the projection involved. It's like whatever it is they're doing, and I mean at a precise level, is exactly what they accuse you of doing. You're attacking democracy. Really, I like democracy. Democracy would give people without money and without a TV show some voice in how they are governed. Therefore, I'm for it. 
And they want exactly the opposite. So the middle class in America, which has been not the majority since 2015, the anniversary that nobody noticed, has less economic power than it's ever had. That's why Trump got elected, in my view. And now it has less political power than it's ever had. So if you are taking power away from large segments of your population, you are by definition attacking democracy. That's exactly what you're doing. There's no other name for it. So that's the first thing I noticed. In the name of defending democracy, we took away the things we need to have democracy, which is our core freedoms guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, just as in our war for democracy, we are supporting a government, paying for the entire government that has banned opposition parties, put opposition leaders in jail, shutting down free speech, now shutting down an election, and putting dissident priests in prison. It's such a democracy, they don't have elections anymore. That's how pure a democracy it is. to know what really, really matters to them and to you and to the future of the country, consider the things that you were not allowed to say. I noticed this right after January 6th. I'll never forget it as long as I live. As a very literal, not super quick, not highly clever person, I was completely content to believe January 6th was what it looked like to me on TV, which is a bunch of angry people who thought the election was stolen from them, who... <laughs> who, appropriately, went to confront the people they thought stole it. So like George Floyd gets killed and all of a sudden they loot Foot Locker. What did Foot Locker have to do with it? I will say, in Republican primary voters' defense, they're mad at the Congress. They went to the Congress. They didn't loot any liquor stores. They just went right to the source. That's true. It wasn't like... Oh, they stole the election from us. Let's loot Macy's. All right. But anyway, so I saw this and I was like, yeah, okay. It was people super mad. They thought the election, I mean, this was January 6th. So like it was, you know, it took a long time for me to figure out what happened. Just being honest. I think I'm just too old. And so it's like hard to notice when things change, like certain assumptions you have, like, yeah, of course it's on the level. They wouldn't actually like, subvert an election. And as someone very smart said to me, really, people kill each other over insurance claims. Uh, this is running the world. <laughs> like, what wouldn't they do? Oh, right, good point. Um, anyway, but I, I just kind of didn't think too much about it. Like, I'm definitely opposed to vandalism. Anyone who breaks windows is not my friend. I hate that. Have you ever glazed a window? You ever put in a window? It's really hard. I mean it. If you don't think it's hard, try it. You get the size wrong, it doesn't fit, pull pins in, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like, a, it's like an all-day affair to replace a divided glass door. Anyway, so I don't like that at all. And I said that, I don't like it. And within like about an hour, I heard people say, well, that was a racist insurrection. And I was like, really? I didn't, I didn't know race had anything to do with it. I didn't hear one person say a word about race and an insurrection, call me literal, is when armed people try to overthrow the government. That didn't seem to happen either. So I just pretty innocently said, you know, bad, probably not a racist insurrection. What? Shut up! Racist insurrectionist! 
but like in a week or so, when you know the emotional devastation of this second 9-11 slash Pearl Harbor wears off, people calm down and come to their senses and you can have like a rational conversation about what this actually was and why. And at a certain point, because I really believe in cause and effect, someone will say, well, why were these people so mad? They, you know, none of them had criminal records. They were like grandmoms with diabetes and like a lot of debt. They're the least powerful people in our society, like legit the least powerful. And why were they so mad? Like, why did they take the bus from Tennessee to go jump up and down in front of the Capitol? Like something probably had better things to do. And then maybe if they think that the election wasn't fair, we will sit them down in a very calm, rational way and be like, I get it. We said that Biden won by 81 million votes. It's 15 million more than Barack Obama. It seems like a lot. <clears throat> Considering he didn't campaign and he can't talk. Um, but you know, there was just something about him. It was that magic and you know, maybe you didn't feel it. It's like pistachio ice cream. It's not a flavor for everybody, but the people who like it really like it, 81 million. So settle down. And by the way, we have the source code in the voting machine software and we've looked at it and it's totally on the level. We've double checked. We wouldn't let like an electronic voting machine hide their software from us. Like never do that. And the Dropbox is like totally monitored by law enforcement. And every person who voted had to prove he was who he said he was with a government issued ID. Like settle down. And I would have said fair enough because I want to believe in our elections. Who doesn't? And in fact, the people at the Capitol on January 6th are exactly the ones who most want to believe in our elections. They're the ones who carried the pocket constitution. How many CNN anchors like deeply believe in the American political process? They put you in a camp if they could. Shut up. They have no interest in the process at all. But the people who really believed in it were naturally the most shocked and the most upset to believe it wasn't real. But anyway, I thought we would have that conversation at some point. You know, I never supported, and I will never support vandalism, period. But I did think, well, maybe the upside, this, Ashley Babbitt's killing, clearly in retrospect to murder, um, you know, it'll amount to something. We can have a national conversation about this. And I'm completely for national conversations. But every year they promise us a national conversation, well, on race, no, we need a conversation on race. Okay, shut up. Okay. National conversation means no one's allowed to talk, except the people who called for the national conversation. And they never stopped talking. But anyway, we never had any conversation about that. In fact, anyone who tried was deplatformed, debanked, basically hounded out of public life in America, bankrupted, a lot of cases put in jail. But we never, not only do we not have that conversation, that conversation was literally banned. Now it's in the guidelines of most of the big social media companies, you can't have that conversation. So I would just, I would make a couple of points. And the most obvious one is any country that doesn't allow a free discussion of the process by which its leaders are elected is not a democracy, by definition. A country without free speech is not a democracy. Free speech is a prerequisite to democracy. You can't have it without it. You can't have a dinner party without dinner. You can't have a democracy without free speech, period. Period and full stop. 
and I agree with the sentiment that Tucker Carlson expressed. But that still leaves me with question marks, commas, and exclamation points about democracy to consider. Points that should be central to any discussion of democracy, but which are so often avoided even by some of democracy's most ardent defenders. And just as the question, what is a woman, was asked, so too we must ask the question, what is a democracy? I have yet to find a truly objective, encompassing definition of democracy that takes into account all of the meanings that people attach to that word. I think that the freedom of speech Tucker Carlson described is less a condition of democracy than it is a condition of freedom. And too many people inappropriately equate democracy with freedom, but given that all forms of government are about governing and ruling people, the term democracy does have some legitimacy in a broad sense. But consider the problems. My Funk and Wagnalls dictionary defines democracy as, quote, a form of government in which political power resides in all the people, end quote. And, well, I think that's ridiculous in terms of, you know, the power resides in all the people. Well, that's a collective, which both in theory and in practice strips the individual of any power whatever. Think about it. As an individual, your vote is meaningless unless a majority of other voters vote the same way as you do. Otherwise, your vote makes no difference to the outcome of whatever it was that you were voting for or against. My Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics defines democracy this way, quote, Greek, rule by the people. Since the people are rarely unanimous, democracy as a descriptive term is synonymous with majority rule. In ancient Greece, and when the word was revived in the 18th century, most writers were opposed to what they called democracy. Ancient Athens called itself a democracy from 500 BC to 330 BC because all citizens could take part in political decisions. But women, Slaves and resident aliens, including people from other Greek cities, had no right to participate. Citizens were thus less than a quarter of the adult population. Quote-unquote majority appears to be more clear-cut than the people. It means more than half. End quote. And then there's William Sapphire's political dictionary, which doesn't even list the word democracy in it. Instead, it has the word democrat. Quote, a member of one of the two major U.S. political parties, or Democrat with a small d, one who favors strong governmental action for the welfare of the many, end quote. Well, that's pretty much as perfect a description of tyranny as I've ever heard. Strong government action? That means using physical force and obviating consent. And if it's for the welfare of the many, what the hell does many mean? A majority? I mean, a majority, in which case a minority of people would have their individual rights violated for the supposed many? So now we've got the few supporting the welfare of the many. I mean, the contradictions are too many to even attempt to address. In the Ayn Rand lexicon, they define democracy this way, quote, Democratic, in its original meaning, refers to unlimited majority rule, a social system in which one's work, one's property, one's mind, and one's life are at the mercy of any gang that may muster the vote of a majority at any moment for any purpose. The American system is not a democracy. It is a constitutional republic. A democracy, if you attach meanings to terms, is a system of unlimited majority rule, 
The classic example is ancient Athens, and the symbol of it is the fate of Socrates, who was put to death legally because the majority didn't like what he was saying, although he had initiated no force and had violated no one's rights. Democracy, in short, is a form of collectivism which denies individual rights, the majority can do whatever it wants with no restrictions. Democracy is a totalitarian manifestation. It is not a form of freedom. The American system is a constitutionally limited republic, restricted to the protection of individual rights. In such a system, majority rule is applicable only to lesser details, such as the selection of certain personnel. But the majority has no say of the basic principles governing the government, end quote. Well, even there, they still acknowledge that majority rule is part of the process. And I think all of these descriptions of democracy fail to define it in any sort of objective way. I mean, if democracy is merely majority rule and nothing else, then why do we have two terms for the same definition? Why don't we just call it majority rule? Period. <laughs> I've often defined, for example, freedom and tyranny as conditions. They are not quote-unquote systems of government. They are conditions that arise as a consequence of systems of governance or of rule. Similarly, I look at democracy in the same way. Democracy is not a system of government. It is a condition best described, though not ideally, I think, by the phrase of the people, by the people, and for the people. But it prescribes no particular form of governance. In fact, I would amend that phrase to read of individuals, by individuals, and for individual rights. Yes, America is a constitutionally limited republic, but it is also a democracy. Canada is described as a constitutional monarchy, but it is also a democracy. And various republics, quote-unquote, around the world abound, with many of them eventually being referred to as banana republics while there are other nations that are outrightly totalitarian, fascist, communist, yet every nation in the world has elections. All of them call themselves democracies. So if democracy is simply a form of majority rule, then every non-governmental agency and business that has shareholders or directors who vote on issues concerning their organizations would be considered democracies. But they are not. They are still businesses and corporations. And, for example, if a family takes a vote on where to go for a vacation and a majority gets to choose, does the family itself become a democracy? You know, politics has been called both an art and a science, and today's politicians really love the word science. It's the term they now use to justify purely political and tyrannical policies. Neil Oliver had an interesting observation to make on this. Science is supposed to be a conversation without end, an ongoing process of asking questions, whereby someone observes some part of the way the world seems to work, comes up with a potential explanation for what appears to be happening, and then designs experiments to see if that explanation might be proved wrong. A scientist actively encourages his fellows to come up with experiments of their own, the better to challenge his idea. For as long as the explanation holds up in the face of the experiments, it gets to stick around, but the point of the scientific method is that every explanation must always be subject to challenge by anyone. As soon as someone puts the word the in front of the word science, you know they've decided the conversation is closed because they have no more to offer the debate. The difference between science and this science is the difference between a living plant with roots 
and a cut flower in a vase. One is alive with more to give, the other quite dead. More troublesome voices were heard asking questions about exactly what was going on in Ukraine. Anyone asking about the geopolitics, US involvement, Biden family involvement, the politics of the Azov battalion, all silenced. We were told it was about saving democracy. They might as well have called it the democracy. Democracy is a living thing as well, wherein each political ideology is only a theory, each government only an experiment to test the theory, and always there should be the opportunity to challenge the theory and, when necessary, replace it with one altogether different. <laughs> the democracy. I love it. It's one of those adjectives that in practice always means not. Like, the democracy means not democracy, or alt-right means not right. And follow the science, meaning, of course, not science, unless it's of the political variety. Science is not followed. It is practiced. And then, of course, there's the truth, which, as Tucker Carlson asserts, is something on which no one has a monopoly. If you wake up in the morning and think, I'm the only person who possesses the truth, you are clinically insane. So, seek help. But, within the, the bounds of our abilities as people, you can get pointed in the direction. Where's the North Star? You, you can get there. And how do you know? And it's really simple. Who are the thought criminals and what are they saying? What are they saying? They're saying crazy things like the water's turning the frogs gay. <laughs> what a crazy person. Let's make him pay a billion dollars. Water's actually turning the frogs gay, that's true. Turns out. Years later they tell us. Turns out it's true. Yeah, it's actually true. Um, I, I'm, not you know, I'm not endorsing any specific person's theories about anything. But I am telling you that the people who censor your words and thoughts have a, this is one thing I'll say about them, they have a very precise and well-calibrated sense of what's important. They know. These are not frivolous people. They can smell like your dog can smell. Like your parents could smell in high school if you smoked a Marlboro. They know what's important. They don't waste any time in the unimportant stuff. And so I would honestly say a lot of the debates we have, and certainly a lot of the ones that I've engaged in, probably diversions from the things that really matter, honestly. And that may account for why every time I was out of the country last week and I came back and I was like, I've got a duty to be up on the news, to read all these texts, and like everything I read is like a new height of insanity. I'm like, That's, uh, that, that is the Mount Everest of lunacy. It can't get any crazier than that at all breastfeeding men or whatever you know we're gonna we're gonna give back nebraska to an indian tribe that no longer exists we're not doing that by the way omaha's safe but i'm just saying every one of these stories enraged me and of course that was probably the point i do think i really believe that the exponential growth of totally irrational claims by the other side, things that no sane person could, I mean, beginning with men can give birth, but there are a million of them, that these claims are actually designed to take people like me and send us off into a screaming fit so we don't notice that actually they're looting the country. I think that. I don't think that, I don't think there is a single member of Congress, except like maybe the dumbest, maybe Ocasio-Cortez or something, but like, 
but the but the but the normal ones or semi-normal ones. I mean, grading on a curve. I don't think there's a single Democratic member of Congress who cares at all about trans rights. I don't think there's a single one who thinks men can breastfeed because, like, not one in history ever has. Quite a bit of evidence to the contrary on that claim. I don't think they believe it. I really don't. And by the way, it, it's super important to push back against them and to call them crazy because they are. I'm not saying a retreat from these things at all. I'm merely saying if they throw a story in your face that's so nuts that you can only growl like a dog in response, they're probably doing that on purpose. And you should probably look around and ask yourself, what are the topics that no one's even pushing back on? What are the topics that their response is so ferocious that people are like, I don't want to deal with it? One of them is the war in Ukraine. Another's COVID. And of course, the third is January 6th. And you have to ask, why is that? Well, it's not by accident, trust me. There is a reason. What are the crimes that are punished? Thought crimes. Thinking the wrong thing, having the wrong beliefs, saying unapproved words. And those words are always true. They are always true. Their response was the tell. If you want to know what they care about, if you want to know what's important, listen to how they respond when you say something unapproved about it. So if you were to, I don't know, write a post on Facebook tonight and say, I think Papua New Guinea is the most powerful nation in the world. You would get not a single response other than someone's been smoking weed again. No one would care. It's like demonstrably untrue. That's why the flat earth people have been able to cruise beneath the radar for so long. Because they're, and by the way, I'm not discounting that possibility for the record in case any are here. Because I am an open-minded man. Present me the evidence of its flatness and I will amplify it. But the point is, when something is clearly or very likely untrue, it poses no threat to anyone. What's scary and what will elicit a response are true things. No one is punished for lying. People are only punished for telling the truth. Consider the question, why should you ban something if it is false? Truth doesn't need bans. Truth defends itself. So why do they want to ban things they claim to be false? Because they're not false and they know it. This is why people that truly believe in freedom don't want to ban anyone's opinion. Those that want to destroy freedom are the ones that do that. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now, before moving on, a point about free speech to address the idea that there are legitimate limits to free speech. The right to free speech, like the right to own a gun or a weapon, is an absolute right. For example, if I own a gun and murder someone with it, 
This does not abrogate everyone else's right to gun ownership. In fact, it is my actions that I've taken with that gun that justifies my being arrested and subject to legal penalties. The same applies to free speech. The quote-unquote absoluteness of the right to free speech in no way means that in a free society there should be no consequences to anything that anyone says. Consequences addressable by the government through the justice system. If you libel or slander someone, you are bearing false witness. This causes demonstrable harm not only to the person being libeled and slandered, but to those who have been deceived by such false information should it have affected their choices in some way. One of the great democratic truths that few wish to contend with was best summarized in the warning that I was repeatedly given when I entered the political arena. If voting ever changed anything they'd make it illegal. <laughs> well, I have spent the better part of half a century directly involved in politics, not only through the Freedom Party of Ontario, where I ran as a candidate for provincial parliament several times, but also on the federal level, where I ran for the Libertarian Party of Canada back in the 70s, and also on the municipal level, when I ran as a trustee for the Board of Education in the City of London. Never won a single election, but you know what? I know for a fact that my own personal political activity through Freedom Party changed more laws in the direction of freedom and saved more taxes than any elected candidate or political party that I'm aware of ever did. As to the Freedom Party of Ontario, we never won an election, but we won every ad hoc campaign that we ran between elections. Freedom Party ended Ontario Sunday closing laws, which were aimed exclusively at the retail industry, while all other industries were left untouched. Working through Freedom Party, I became the first person in history to defeat Ontario's Human Rights Commission when I successfully defended a London landlord being falsely accused of racism, on grounds so absurd that today's insane racist allegations seem reasonable by comparison. Freedom Party defeated dozens of so-called BIAs, business improvement areas, which are really government-established municipal zones that conscript all of the business owners in the identified zone to pay an extra level of municipal taxation, and then they have the gall to call these undemocratic monstrosities business associations. Well, we saved Ontario business people millions, if not billions, of dollars by defeating these horrible associations, but they go on. I mean, we ended union strikes. We fought and won many censorship initiatives, taking on Ontario's official censor board. And on and on. Never lost a campaign, and every nuance of these campaigns has been fully documented on Freedom Party's website at freedomparty.on.ca. But here's a sad lesson I learned from all of these successes. You can win all the battles, but still lose the war. Because in electoral politics, all that counts is winning a majority of voters, however defined. Everybody's always in a hurry these days. If they're not rushing somewhere, they'll be changing something that doesn't need changing. That's why I'm glad we're standing behind the president. Sure we are. It just makes good sense. You don't want to change horses in midstream. Why are they sticking with this age-old horse? Why are they sticking with the same old garbage? Who hires these people? I mean, I feel insulted just having seen it. You know well, what I mean? It's offensive. It's bad. Poorly costumed. Mm, New York Times, Washington Post, war, war, war. Mm. It's all war. You're doing good.
Would you vote for that person based on that commercial? You know I don't vote. Why don't you vote? Last time I voted, voted that one time, Major League Baseball, when they started the fans voting thing, and I voted for Boo Powell for first base. He didn't get in, and it, it just disappointed me. It stayed with me. I just, it's futile. That you, was it. You've never voted for president? No. Do you vote? No. no. I always vote for the Academy Awards, but I never win. Liz, do you vote? Mm. Do you vote? No, I don't vote, no. I don't like the rooms. Too claustrophobic. I can't vote in small places. A vote represents a consensus, not consent. Hence, the effectiveness of a single individual's vote is only valid if he or she is voted with the majority. And in the minds of many, those who voted otherwise have, have wasted their vote. Voters who consider voting for new parties, you know, they're always confronted with the wasted vote theory of democracy on the grounds that the new party won't get elected. But think about how stupid that is. It means that unless you vote for the elected candidate or party, your vote is wasted. And you know the old saying that speaks to yet another truth. It's not the people who vote who make a difference. It's the people who count the votes. Which is why the outcome of the last American election was decided by the counters and not by the people. And which is why Donald Trump continues to amaze. And here's Alex Jones who apparently agrees. Well, President Trump has taken his fight against the New World Order to maximum. And he has gone all the way and told the people the truth. His rhetoric is not exaggerated. It's not understated. It's dead on sweet spot like that hole in one we saw this weekend. It's incredible. And only the real truth about where our country is and the position it's in will reverse the incredible slide into abject tyranny and collapse. President Trump has come out and said that we live under a globalist dictatorship. They are fascist using communist tactics, but they're fascist. That's what they are, properly defined them. And that they are cementing a permanent tyranny and dictatorship over America. And that this is the final battle. This really is the first great battle with the New World Order occupational government out in the open, stealing elections, spying, censoring, turning the security agencies publicly loose on the people. Uh, I mean, th this could be the final battle if he gets reelected and gets control of the Justice Department and starts prosecuting these people, which he's pledged to do. So it could be the final battle because we could defeat them or they could bring in a permanent dictatorship that we never remove. But the statements about this being an occupied dictatorship of the globalists, of these fascists, is dead on. You know, Trump says globalists is too nice a term for them, that they're really fascist, communist criminals. And the average leftist intellectual goes, oh my gosh, communists and fascists are totally different. No, they're not. They're very similar. From the surveillance to the secret police, to the black uniforms, to the centralized government. Just with fascism, they allow big corporations to still operate and merge with the state. And Obama's gone around and given speeches explaining to law students in Africa and Central America and Latin America and all over, now listen, we need a hybrid system of communism and capitalism, and that's the system that we're building in the New World Order. Yeah, it's called slavery with a high-tech name. Trump has gone over the top at a turning point USA extravaganza. Now that Trump is super hardcore, he's... 70 plus points ahead in all the polls against all other candidates combined. 
he th that's Republicans. He's 30 to 40 points ahead of Biden. Even in skewed CNN polls, he's 20 points ahead. This has never been seen since polling began. Trump is wildly popular now. The full Trump speech is on Infowars.com and a Steve Watson article. Please go watch it and share it. But here is Trump on what's at stake if Democrats in 2024 are able to steal the election again. We are in trouble. This country is in trouble. The election will decide whether your generation inherits a fascist country or a free country, whether you will have a rule of tyrants or the rule of law, whether Marxist radicals burn our civilization to the ground, which they're looking to do, or young patriots like you propel America to glorious new heights greater than ever before. Side by side, we're going to fight and we're going to win. We have no choice, actually. We're going to evict crooked Joe Biden. You know, I took the name off of Hillary. You know that, right? Everybody here knows that. It was crooked Hillary. I was very successful. But I think she's out of it now. But no, I thought it was more appropriate uh, because he's crooked as you can get. This is the most dishonest president in history. And I wouldn't have said it. You know, I have, I have pride in the presidency and respect for the presidency. I wouldn't have said it. But I say things about him over the last three weeks that I would have never said before about any president. Uh, he is a corrupt, horrible, incompetent man, and he's destroying our country, and we have to have it changed. And with God's help, we're going to save America on November 5th, 2024. And when I said originally in 2016, it's the most important election, I meant that this is far more important. This is far more important because our country is ready to go down ready to go possibly into world war three and this won't be a war like others this will be a nuclear war and the level of destruction it's called obliteration it's not two army tanks going back and forth shooting at each other this is big stuff and we have a man who's grossly incompetent who doesn't even know where he is who can't put two sentences together and this is the man that's telling us what we're going to be doing under biden Hope and opportunity for young people, so many young people here, are being utterly extinguished. In the Biden economy, one-third of Gen Z and millennials have no savings accounts and no saving whatsoever. They have nothing. They have nothing. Home ownership has been pushed out of reach for millions with the rate of 30-year mortgages up 177 percent since I left office. And by the way, that's nothing compared to energy, where we were energy independent. And now you look at what's happened to energy. We're getting our energy from Venezuela. You believe that one? Real wages collapsed 26 months in a row. Real wages because of inflation and various other things that are happening. 2024 is our final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers. From our government, we will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, fascists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. And we will rout the fake news media. We will defeat crooked Joe Biden. And we will drain the swamp once and for all. We made a lot of progress, but it's pretty deep. And he said the key in that first clip,
said, we have to beat these people. We do not have a choice. They are cementing a permanent dictatorship of the bureaucracy and the corporations and destroying the economy to control us because that's how communists control you is by destroying the economy for the general public. Venezuela was a rich, wealthy country 25 years ago. Hugo Chavez ran in the ground with promises to the masses about free goodies. Same thing's been done everywhere. This is a plan beyond Cloward and Piven. So we have no choice. We must defeat these people. Yes, our country is occupied. Yes, our country has been captured. Trump goes all out, warns U.S. now under globalist dictatorship. Knowing that is half the battle. Now we remove the dictatorship. We are going to choke off the money to schools that aid the Marxist assault on our American heritage and on Western civilization itself. The days of subsidizing communist indoctrination in our colleges will soon be over. And, you know, I will say this. This is a, I would say, very largely conservative group. I call it common sense group because I think a lot of conservatism is common sense. When they ask you for a definition, it starts with common sense. But uh, I tell them uh, very often that you will be shocked to see colleges, even the ones that you hear are most liberal. We have tremendous numbers of people out there, I think even more. They don't speak up as much, but they're starting to speak up. You know, when you see Bud Light and when you see all of the things that have happened, I mean, you take a look at that. They're down 37%. The company is, nobody's ever seen it. And, you know, the, the radical left has always used that. They've used their buying power. They'd sort of name a company and go after a company. We've never done it. That just happened uh, by osmosis, actually. But it's also happening. I heard Target mentioned today and various others. And we have tremendous power to make sure that our country goes down the right tracks. We're going to smash the Marxist diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies that are driving up tuition costs and sticking you with crushing debt. And for any universities that want federal student loan dollars, we will also require them to offer real job placement and career services, as well as options for accelerated and low-cost degrees. Uh, these institutions have gone up. The pricing has gone up more than just about any industry. You, you look at their costs and they drive them up because the federal government gives loans to everybody. So it's more expensive, but somebody has to pay back that loan, except under Biden. But the Supreme Court decided that that wasn't going to happen. All right. And I'm not an apologist for Trump. I have issues with him, but he's the real deal. Trump is being sarcastic there when he says you weren't going to call her crooked Hillary anymore because she's out of it. Right. And now it's crooked Biden. That is a very astute statement. The Clinton crime syndicate is another arm that shared power with the group behind Obama. The, the globalist clique that controls Obama is in control of Biden and is quarterbacking things. The Obamas and the Clintons actually don't like each other. That's well known. And so Trump's explaining Hillary is no longer a contender with her foundation and her system. They're done. When it comes right down to it, in the end, 
It's define or be defined. That is the epistemological battlefield on which all of politics and war is ultimately fought. And if we define democracy in a way that leaves it open to interpretation, then we shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves interpreted right out of our life, liberty, and property rights. We'll own nothing and be miserable. Question authority before authority questions you, because political ends and means are always the same. In demanding sacrifice on the part of the public to attain some future political goal like fighting climate change or protecting democracy, that sacrifice is both the end and means, and the political promises will never be achieved. You can rest assured about that. But here's a key to solving the democracy problem. Democracy, in order to be functional, must be limited. The right to life, liberty, and property should never be subject to any kind of voting process. And I was wondering, why does everybody so easily accept the idea of a constitutionally limited republic, but no one ever entertains the possibility of a constitutionally limited democracy? You know, there's a definitional blockage going on somewhere in there. When did the majority rule on the definition of democracy as being pure majority rule? And as to truth, I'm beginning to view truth as more than just a narrative reflecting the reality of a given situation, which it is. But truth itself is a condition and a process under which people choose to live or choose to reject. Living in the light of truth, they say, not living in the darkness of officially true lies. Got this email from my daughter, Danielle, under the heading, Today I learned a lethophobia. A-L-E-T-H-O-P-H-O-B-I-A, described as a noun and defined as, quote, a crippling fear of truth, the inability to accept unflattering facts about your nation, religion, culture, ethnic group, or yourself, end quote. A lot of that going around lately, says Danielle. And finally, in closing, one last point on freedom of speech. Having the right to free speech does not compel anyone else to have to listen to it. Freedom of speech means freedom from speech as well. And that is why when we continue to exercise our freedom of speech on our upcoming broadcast, you won't even have to listen or pay attention when you join us again next week on our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. to black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright How much are you here for this meeting? Isn't this a party matter? It is the party chairman and the chief whip. It's also a government matter. It's about our education policy. Uh, the governments or the parties? It's the same thing. <laughs> you respect Prime Minister, they're not the same thing. That's why we want the meeting. Now, what's the problem? Education. Now, what do you think I can do about it? You're the Prime Minister. Yes, I know. And I have no direct control over education as such. I mean, I don't control the curriculum, I don't control the exams, I don't control the choice of head teachers, nothing. But the voters are holding you responsible for everything that's going wrong. You do have influence. And I'm absolutely fed up with it. When I became Prime Minister, I thought I was going to have power. What have I got? I've got influence, that's all. I've got no power over the police, the rates, EEC directives, the European courts, our courts, the judges, NATO. What have I got the power to do? You have the power to lose us the next election. <laughs> if you don't do something about education. The voters want something done about low academic attainment. 
the non-competitive ethos, sex education. I'm not against sex education. Well, I'm not against children being taught the facts of life in the classroom, but not homosexual technique. <laughs> no heterosexual technique come to that. Never mind sexual technique. Some of our schools are teaching more Hindi than English. Well, I know that English is more important than Hindi, but I don't say so in public. I'd be accused of racism. Yes, Last but I... week when I met the Ethnic Awareness Council, I happened to glance at my watch when a black woman delegate was speaking. I was immediately accused of racist body language. 